Our speaker this afternoon is author and curator Robert Peck. Mr. Peck is the curator of art and artifacts at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University in Philadelphia, and he was a guest curator of the bicentennial exhibition of Edward Lear's natural history painting, paintings rather, at Harvard University's Houghton Library. Mr. Peck is also a veteran of many scientific expeditions to remote regions of the Amazon rainforest and the Mongolian steppes and has received honors from the Academy of Natural Science and uh, Sciences rather, and the Explorers Club. He is the author of many books and articles on natural history and natural history artists and has lectured widely on Lear in the United States, Australia, and Great Britain. Today, Mr. Peck joins us to present his talk, The Remarkable Na uh, Nature of Edward Lear. So please join me in extending a warm welcome to Robert Peck. Thank you for that introduction, and hello, everyone. I'm delighted to be back at the Boston Athenaeum uh, on this beautiful day, in this beautiful building, and in the company of so many fellow Lear enthusiasts and admirers. Uh, I imagine that many of you, like me, were raised with Edward Lear uh, being read to you, uh, and you in turn may have done the same for your children or grandchildren. And if you haven't, I urge you to do so, because there's nothing more fun uh, than reading Lear. Uh, my wife and I have two 14-year-old sons who, when they were a bit younger, when they were seven or eight, always insisted when I put them to bed that the book we would read would be Edward Lear's Nonsense. Uh, they called it the nosy book. Uh, and you can see why. He certainly drew a lot of pictures of people with noses. I think I might have called it the bird book, both because I love birds and because there are often even more birds than noses in, in these pictures. Uh, they're, they're such fun, and one can never really get enough of them. I can't say that I really fully understand them all. Some, some are a little bit obscure, but they, they still capture one's imagination. And they don't always uh, focus on birds. Uh, some of his letter alphabetical books, of course, had to have other things, too, running the gamut from bears to owls to even monkeys riding on the back of a zebra. But uh, lots of things that actually were never even published. These are at Houghton, but uh, I just love the way he treated animals. Uh, he was so fond of them. Uh, kept some as pets, but uh, mostly just observed. <coughs> Turtles, owls, and cats, and even a kangaroo. And, of course, he drew lots of pictures of people, including this one, which I think he intended to represent himself, surrounded by his beloved birds and reading a book of his own nonsense in a frock coat a generation out of fashion and with these funny reversed feet. That's a very Lyrian touch, sort of slightly on backwards. His limericks have earned him a worldwide following of people of all ages and a place in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey, immediately next to that of Lewis Carroll, who, strangely, he never met. Uh, they were contemporaries. They had many friends in common. Uh, but for some reason, uh, at least I've never found any evidence that their paths actually crossed. In 1988, to commemorate the bicentennial of Edward Lear's death, the British 
Postal Service issued four stamps celebrating Lear's unmatched wit and artistic flair. These included a self-caricature of the bearded artist flying on improbably minuscule wings, a sketch of the two protagonists in The Owl and the Pussycat, which is certainly his most famous poem, a drawing of Lear's beloved stub-tailed cat, Foss, and a limerick illustration of a bonneted lady on whose hat a flock of imaginary birds is attempting to roost. The affable Lear would have been astonished and no doubt pleased by his country's philatelic attention, but almost certainly disappointed by the choice of images with which the Royal Mail chose to mark the centennial of his death. He considered the illustrated limericks and other nonsense verse only an incidental sideline to his more serious focus on natural history and landscape paintings. In fact, the artist so feared that his nonsensical flights of fancy, that is his nonsense limericks, would undermine his reputation in the scientific world that he refused to have his name associated with their publication until decades after they had won for him a devoted following from around the world. We tend to think of Edward Lear as a jolly, rotund Victorian with a wonderful sense of humor, a man who made children laugh by gently poking fun at the improbable foibles of eccentric adults not unlike himself. All of this is certainly one part of Edward Lear, but the Lear I want to tell you about today is a younger, lighter, and slightly more serious man, an artist who dazzled the world with paintings of birds, the likes of which no one had seen before. It's a wonderful story of a modest, self-deprecating, self-taught talent reshaping the worlds of art and science while winning a place in the hearts of generations of children he never knew. It's the story of a man whose life was perfectly timed to coincide with those interesting years of the British Empire in which naturalists in the newly settled colonies of Australia, India, Africa, and elsewhere were collecting and sending to London an astonishing array of new birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, insects, and plants. These, in turn, fostered an appetite for books about them among the aristocracy and the rising middle class. My love of Lear as a natural history painter grew directly from his pictures, but my impetus for writing a book about it came from my longtime friend and mentor, Sir David Attenborough, who first proposed the idea to me more than 25 years ago. I've written and published a number of other books since, but his encouragement through the years has kept bringing me back to Lear and to his remarkable achievements. Sir David's friendly proddings and a very nice invitation from David Godin in 2012 uh, it, it resulted in the book that I'm talking about today. The book's divided into two sections. The first and largest part is on Lear and his interest in natural history. The second part is about Lear's influence on other artists over time. And I'll present today's lecture in summarized form, but using pretty much that same uh, 
proportion. About two-thirds of my talk will be devoted to Lear, and I'll show you as many images of him as I possibly can, because that's the fun. Uh, and then in the last few minutes, I'll talk a little bit about some of the artists who are carrying on in Lear's tradition today. To put all of what I'm going to say in context, I should begin with Lear's remarkable family history. He was the 20th of 21 children, born in 1812 to a middle-class family in a village suburb north of London. And I should say, this was the same mother and father who produced all 25 children. Kind of an amazing feat. A reversal of family fortune when he was just four years old caused the family to be dispersed, and Lear was raised by his oldest sister, Anne, 21 years his senior. It was Lear's artistic talent and appealing personality, rather than his family connections, that would ultimately take him from a modest upbringing in North London to Osborne House on the Isle of Wight and Buckingham Palace, where in 1846 he served as the drawing instructor to Queen Victoria. He ended his days on the Italian Riviera after traveling the world with pencil and brush in hand. But I'm getting ahead of my story here. Let me return to the very beginning of Lear's artistic career. While not a great deal survives from this period, we're fortunate to have several albums created between 1827 and 1830 when Lear was just 15 or 16 years old. At least two of the albums were evidently created by Anne Lear, who was an, a fairly talented artist in her own right, with the help of Edward, who she was then tutoring in uh, rudiments of drawing. So similar are many of the pictures in these albums that were some of them not signed, it would be impossible to say who painted which. The pheasants on the left are by Anne Lear, and there's a little signature here in the lower right-hand corner. The ones on the right may be by either Anne or Edward. Uh, their styles are so similar, but I suspect it's probably Edward, because there are a number of others very much like it that, that are signed by him. One thing you'll notice in all of these early works is that both the botanical illustrations and the birds tend to be very colorful and highly imaginary. It's possible that this early work by the Lear siblings was inspired by the so-called fancy bird porcelain that was then being made in England and Germany. It's also possible that Lear and his older sister were hoping to sell their designs to one of the English manufacturers of the day. Perhaps they did. This is an area that still needs further research. And if any of you are collectors of, of ceramics, uh, perhaps you have some of these fancy bird uh, pictures and you can, you can find ones that match up with some of Lear's drawings. At about the same time he was making his fanciful paintings of birds, Lear was also making very accurate studies of plants under the influence of another sister named Sarah. Also, as revealed in his albums, he was beginning to make some bird paintings that were based more on living birds than his imagination. In this red and yellow macaw, for example, we see the childlike treatment of landscape coupled with a very original and realistic pose and attitude in the bird itself. This is almost certainly a bird painted from life by a teenaged Edward Lear, 
whose ability to capture the vitality of his subjects would only improve with time. Elsewhere in the albums are images that move dramatically from the imaginary world of his childhood to the very real world of the London Zoo, which opened to the public just as Lear was growing interested in natural history. This page in one of Lear's youthful albums makes it very clear that Lear was getting his inspiration from living birds. Four of the five feathers here are real parrot feathers glued onto the page. One, however, the most delicate one, is a watercolor, probably a European jay, and I've uh, done a blow-up of it here on the right. These ones, I suspect, when they were in the album, were in much better shape, and so you wouldn't be as uh, likely to think of them as real. They, they would have, they've gotten a bit flustered uh, over the years since. And so we see in these three pages, all from the same album, the coming of age of Edward Lear as a natural history painter, who could combine accurate depictions of the birds he saw with an irreverent, joyful attitude that infuses his subjects with life. Scientific illustration in the 18th and early 19th centuries tended to be still and lifeless, even when the subjects were alive, as in these birds by Eliezer Alban. Specimens were generally shown in profile against a white background. Trees and branches were sometimes used as necessary devices to support specimens, most of which were drawn from skins rather than from living birds. The same was true with books on mammals. Edward Lear and his American contemporary John James Audubon were about to change that. Compare, for example, these stiff, lifeless mammals from Edward Godman's American Natural History, published in 1826, with these life studies of mammals by Edward Lear, painted only a few years later. Or these birds by Alexander Wilson, with these watercolors by Edward Lear. I'll say more about the style of Lear's painting shortly, but for the moment, let me continue the story of Lear's emergence as an artist. While he was still in his teens, he made small amounts of money drawing what he described as, quote, uncommon queer shop sketches and, quote, making morbid disease drawings for hospitals and certain doctors of physic. Unfortunately, none of these anatomical drawings has survived or at least have not yet been identified as having been drawn by Lear. They might not have been signed or that they might simply have uh, disappeared. They may show up in a secondhand print shop or something in London, but this is very much what they looked like, uh, hanging, as you can see, on the walls of this instructional anatomy classroom in London. In fact, it could have been this very room. Because his medical illustrations were so grim, we can well imagine Lear's delight when he was asked to create some illustrations for William Bennett, a founder and longtime officer of the Zoological Society of London. Bennett asked him to supply a number of vignettes to enliven a two-volume work on the animals at the zoo. Strangely and unfortunately for Lear, his work was not acknowledged in the book. We know of his contributions only because he inserted his subtle but distinctive EL monogram in the backgrounds of two of the illustrations. You can see here, it looks almost like the British pound sign, which I think is not a coincidence. 
he may have been playing a, a pun on how much he was paying paid for these pictures, or perhaps he wasn't paid at all and, and wished he had been. In any case, the, the, the signature appears just hidden here in the back of these lemurs, and there's another one down here below the blue and yellow macaws. Though no doubt pleased to be published at all, Lear was determined not to remain anonymous for long. Sometime in 1827 or 28, oh, and I, this is just a detail of that. Possibly before the Zoological Society opened its doors to the public in 1828, Lear conceived and began working on a portfolio of drawings of birds and animals in the zoological gardens that he intended to market as individual lithographs sold in sets with the idea that they would be enjoyed as prints or be bound and retained in book form. For a 16 or 17-year-old artist with no experience in publishing and no independent resources to back his venture, this was a remarkably ambitious undertaking. It's significant because it unquestionably was Lear's first self-publishing effort. Though unmentioned by Lear himself or Lear scholars until now, the project has just enough surviving remnants on both sides of the Atlantic to confirm its existence and to raise questions about why it was attempted and why it failed. A single surviving lithographed wrapper for the first part of Lear's work, a detail of which I show here, is owned by the Zoological Society in London. While an original wash study for its peaceable kingdom vignette is contained in one of the youthful albums at Houghton Library. Also contained in that album is a pencil sketch of a polar bear that would have been included as one of the plates in Lear's plan portfolio. This is the sketch, and this is the only surviving example of the lithograph Lear made of it, with the sketch inserted in the lower left for comparison. Of course, it gets reversed when it's printed on the lithographic stone. The only other plates that are known to survive from this early work are the head of a sleeping lion, which I particularly like, and a harpy eagle. Whether Lear lost interest in the project or found it too difficult to fund, we do not know. But in any case, he appears to have abandoned the venture by the end of 1829. Perhaps he had already shifted his focus away from an amorphous audience of general zoo visitors. It seems he may have chosen to focus instead on a more committed and better funded audience. The new patrons he had identified were a small group of collectors who were interested in acquiring and raising the colorful members of the parrot family as pets and as status symbols. These exotic birds, always popular with the aristocracy, were in the 1820s and 30s arriving in London from Australia, Africa, and South America in increasing numbers. They were beginning to be acquired at considerable expense, not just by the zoo, but by private collectors for inclusion in the aviaries found on some of the great country estates throughout the British Isles. Lear was fascinated by these birds and saw in their owners a possible audience for his artistic talent. In April 1830, at the age of 18, Lear requested permission from the Council of the Zoological Society to have access to their parrots for the purpose of creating a book on the subject. 
Permission was granted, and for the next two years, Lear spent much of his time drawing these colorful creatures from life. We're fortunate that at least 30 of Lear's working drawings and paintings for this great parrot monograph still survive, and most of them are at Harvard. They impart a sense of excitement and spontaneity that is almost without precedent in the history of scientific illustration. Even Audubon's studies from this period, most of which were made from dead specimens, failed to capture the sense of vitality that can be seen in many of Lear's studies. And I mention Audubon here not just because his name is so much better known as a bird painter here in the US and because his great work is owned by the Boston Athenaeum, but because he is one of the very few other artists of the period who had comparable ability. Although Lear was a full generation younger than Audubon, the two began work on their respective books in London in the very same year, 1827. Unlike Lear, Audubon's production was something of a team effort. He generally limited his own paintings to the birds and had assistants paint the backgrounds and floral details. He also had the help of Robert Havel, Jr., arguably the best engraver of the 19th century, who took Audubon's paintings and turned them into the magnificent hand-colored double elephant folio aquatint prints that, we're, that we so admire today. By contrast, Lear did everything himself, including the transfer of his watercolor studies onto lithographic stone for printing, a process at which he was almost completely self-taught and something of a pioneer. It was undoubtedly this tremendous talent, both in painting and in printmaking, that drew the attention and admiration of John Gould. Gould, who would become one of the greatest natural history book publishers of the 19th century, was the chief taxidermist and curator at the London Zoo when Lear began working on his parrot monograph there. He was a mentor to Lear, but also something of a competitor for he was just then beginning to launch his own career as an author and publisher of ornithological books. From the moment Lear published his spectacular book on parrots, Gould began to court him, offering to employ the financially stressed younger artist as an illustrator and as an instructor to his wife, Elizabeth. This may have been an act of generosity toward Lear, but it was undoubtedly also a self-interested one for the business-savvy Gould decided it was better to have Lear working for him than against him as a publisher of fine bird books. Like Lear, Gould's wife Elizabeth was an entirely self-taught artist, but she was far less capable than Lear. Gould had charged her with making all of the plates for his first book, and she was struggling to do so while also raising a young family. Here is one of Elizabeth Gould's illustrations for John Gould's book on Himalayan birds. And here is another. And I show you this one in particular so that you can compare Elizabeth Gould's owl with an owl plate made at about the same time by Lear, her younger teacher. And here you can see the two illustrations side by side. I refer to them as the limp owl and the perky owl. And I think you can see who did which. 
Fortunately, the two artists got along well, and Lear was able to improve Elizabeth Gould's style in the years they worked together. This charming sketch by Lear of a pet field vole kept by Elizabeth Gould hints at the close personal relationship the two developed as they worked together under John Gould's demanding supervision. It's contained in one of the Lear albums that's at Houghton. Lear and John Gould had a complex relationship. According to letters written by Lear at the time, Gould was very helpful to him as he worked on his parrot monograph and on commissions for other publications. Gould bought Lear's unsold inventory of the parrot book, some 50 copies or 2,100 hand-colored lithographs. And he took Lear on his first trip to Europe to visit zoos and natural history collections there sometime in 1833. In return, Lear made 68 magnificent plates for Gould's five-volume work on the birds of Europe, as well as 10 of the 34 plates in Gould's monograph on toucans. In later years, Lear complained that Gould was driving and heartless, exploiting all those who worked for him, including his wife. Lear had reason to be resentful, for just as Audubon failed to credit those who worked for him, Gould sometimes denied Lear the credit that was due for his work. In this plate, which Lear made to illustrate Gould's monograph on toucans in 1834, we can clearly see Lear's signature worked into the composition. Uh, down, it's down here, and I actually have a detail of it. Here we go. You can see Edward Lear, April 1833. Yet the attribution line at the bottom of the print says, drawn from nature on stone by J and E. Gould, with no mention of Lear. Gould's defenders would say that this was standard procedure for the time, as Lear was technically work for hire. Nevertheless, it must have been disheartening for Lear to see his hard work go unacknowledged and to see Gould making a financial success when his own monograph on parrots had been an economic failure. Fortunately, Lear had made a strong enough impression through his own publication that his reputation was secure. When the British naturalist William Swainson received his subscription plate of the red and yellow macaw from Lear a few years earlier, he wrote Lear to say that he considered the illustration, quote, equal to any figure ever painted by Barabond or Audubon for grace of design, perspective, or anatomical accuracy. This was high praise indeed for one of England's most influential ornithologists. Even the cash-strapped Audubon bought a copy of Lear's parrot book for himself, something he almost never did, being perpetually short of funds and highly critical of almost every other natural history painter working at the time, especially John Gould. Lear's reputation earned him many commissions, including a large number of illustrations for the popular Naturalist's Library, edited by William Jardine, in which Lear's work was engraved by William Lazars, the Scottish engraver who had done the first ten plates for Audubon's Birds of America. Lazars, who had seen the work of many fine artists, including Audubon, once wrote to a friend, quote, 
Lear's drawings are nature. All others are pottery ware. During the 1830s, Lear may have helped John and Elizabeth Gould with some of the plates for Charles Darwin's report on the zoological findings on his voyage from HMS Beagle. But evidence of this relationship is so far only circumstantial. And of course, again, even if Lear had been involved in creating these plates, uh, his name does not appear on them, only those of uh, John and Elizabeth Gould. Lear had many patrons, but by far the most important and most generous patron was Edward Stanley, the 13th Earl of Derby, one of the wealthiest men in England and president of the Zoological Society at the time he first came into contact with Lear. He was well aware of Lear's activities, not only through the zoo connections, but because several of his own birds were featured in Lear's parrot monograph, to which he had been an early subscriber. I show you here a preliminary study Lear made for one of his plates of Stanley's parakeet, named after the Earl, now known as Stanley's Rosella, or the Western Rosella from Australia, on which Lear has noted, from a living female or young male lent to me by Lord Stanley. In the summer of 1830, Lord Stanley invited Lear to travel north to Knowsley Hall, his sprawling estate near Liverpool. The Earl owned the largest private menagerie in England, with as many as 620 different bird species and more than 20,000 living and preserved animal specimens by the time it was dispersed in 1851. 20,000 animals, you can imagine. He wished to have Edward Lear document the rarest and most important of these specimens. Despite a warm welcome from the Earl and his extended family, Lear found life at Knowsley Hall somewhat intimidating, as you might imagine from this picture. He reported that as many as 30 servants served at every meal. But fortunately for Lear, there were also many children in the hall. When he wasn't working on his more formal portraits of birds, Lear entertained them with nonsensical poems and fun-filled alphabets. It was at Knowsley that Lear's life as a children's writer and illustrator began. His whimsical drawings cut across all barriers of age and social standing, and he soon found himself treated like a member of the family, even getting rides to and from London with Lord Darby in his personal carriage, something quite unusual in England's highly stratified society. As much as Lord Darby appreciated the fun and laughter Lear brought to Knowsley Hall, it was Lear's talent as a natural history artist that generated his long-term patronage and support. Lord Darby took the scientific aspects of his collection very seriously. Birds and animals that were raised in his menagerie were carefully documented and preserved after death, both in Lear's paintings and as specimens which survive today as the core of the natural history collections at the Liverpool Museum. This night monkey, or Vito, painted by Lear at Knowsley, was eventually turned into a lithograph, and with 16 others, illustrated by Lear, privately published by Lord Darby in 1846, in a book entitled Gleanings from the Menagerie and Avery at Knowsley Hall. Now, Lear did the watercolor. By the time the lithographs were made, he was no longer working on natural history, so someone else did the lithograph. And I think you can agree that it has lost a little bit of its life 
from the original watercolor. Nevertheless, the lithographs were spectacular. And the book was scientifically significant with a text by John Edward Gray, the keeper of zoology at the British Museum. Never sold on the open market, Gleanings from the Menagerie now ranks among the rarest and most sought after of 19th century natural history books. As the decade of the 1830s reached the halfway point, Lear found himself overwhelmed by commissions, including these lovely plates of turtles for his friend Thomas Bell. I am up to my neck in hurry and work from 5 a.m. to 7 p.m. without cessation, he wrote a friend. Despite the near universal acclaim of his illustrations, both for their accuracy and beauty, some of Lear's work was still being published without recognition. When Thomas Bell published A History of British Quadrupeds in 1837, he credited two other artists and gave no credit to Lear at all, despite the fact that Lear produced seven illustrations for the book, including this wonderful one of a hedgehog. And I show you here how it eventually appeared uh, in the engraved form. Fortunately, Lear's own annotated copy of the book survives at Houghton. In it, he noted each of his contributions in pencil, documenting which of the plates he had created. So again, like the work with Gould, he'd learned the trick. Here he says, drawn from life by me, Edward Lear. So there's no doubt, drawn by me, Edward Lear. Uh, nevertheless, his name doesn't appear in the text. Fortunately, Lear's own copy did that, and also his reputation was still earning credit for his paintings in other publications. However, in a classic example of being careful what you wish for, Lear was becoming overwhelmed and exhausted by the exacting work he was being asked to do. He often complained of his poor health and failing eyesight, Nothing smaller than an ostrich shall I soon be able to see, he complained to John Gould in 1835. From the time of his first arrival at Knowsley Hall, he found that he enjoyed painting landscapes more than the birds and animals his patron expected. A sketching trip to England's Lake District in 1835 and to Ireland the following year would ultimately convince him that this was the direction he wanted to pursue. Before abandoning his wildlife subjects, however, he came up with an audacious plan in which he could combine his interest in travel and exotic landscape with his patron's love of natural history. Sometime in 1835, when Lear was at the height of his career as a natural history illustrator, he asked Lord Darby if he would approach John James Audubon on his behalf to see if Lear might be able to accompany Audubon on one of his collecting and drawing trips in North America. A more unlikely set of traveling companions one could hardly imagine. Audubon, the heavy-drinking, swashbuckling, womanizing, bigger-than-life French-American with an ego the size of all outdoors, versus the sickly, nearsighted, slightly effeminate, very gentle Englishman with a self-deprecating form of humor that seemed to shield a truckload of insecurities. Audubon tactfully diffused the idea by pointing out how difficult his upcoming trip was going to be. Lear accepted the rebuff, 
graciously, and neither of the men ever mentioned it again. Still, I've often wondered what such a trip might have been like. With two of the greatest geniuses of wildlife painting ever to live, traveling and working together, who knows what might have emerged. In the years to follow, the two artists went their separate ways. Audubon went on to paint more wildlife subjects in his beloved America, where he could still experience and celebrate wilderness. While Lear pursued his dream of becoming a traveler and painter of landscapes in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia, where he reveled in the breadth and depth of human civilization. Because Audubon stuck to one general subject area throughout his life, he will always be remembered for his natural history paintings, and particularly his birds. Lear's reputation, by contrast, was diffused because of his eclectic interests. His charming and timeless nonsense verses and drawings endured, even as his wildlife paintings were forgotten and his landscapes fell in and out of style. Even though he never focused on natural history professionally after 1837, it still interested him. And you can find hints of his continuing love of the subject in his later work. Take this view of elephants bathing, painted in 1873, or this large oil of the Temple of Apollo, which he painted 20 years earlier and now owned by the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. Easily overseen at first, creeping through the foreground, is a detailed painting of a Herman's tortoise. And again, I have a close-up here. This gives scientific accuracy to the painting, but also may have been Lear's subtle and humorous attempt at a self-portrait, as if showing himself wandering through the ancient ruins of Greece at a snail's pace or a tortoise's pace. From 1837 on, Lear was a voracious traveler, covering vast territory during his long life, often spending time in off-the-beaten-path sorts of places. Not shown on this map are his travels up the Nile and in India. And when I was making this map, uh, I, the, all the lines were beginning to blur up, so I decided to have them all emerge from London. He was actually living in Italy for most of this period, but he went back to London every year, first to visit his sister who had raised him and other members of his family, and then subsequently in an attempt to sell pictures through galleries there. Um, and so it was easier, rather than have them come from different parts of Italy uh, here, I thought it was best to show w the, the emanation from London. But it gives you a sense of uh, the amazing amount of travel that he did. His trips to India toward the end of his life proved to be his most fond in memory. Uh, it was here that he reveled in palms and other plant life. When I go to heaven, if indeed I go, he wrote in 1862, and am surrounded by thousands of polite angels, I shall say courteously, please leave me alone. Let me have a park and a beautiful view of sea and hill, mountain and river, valley and plain, with no end of tropical foliage. These quick wash paintings that he did in India I think are among the most appealing of his botanical works. You can see they are much looser than those earlier botanical ones, maybe because of his failing eyesight and maybe just because he had he changed his style by that time. 
By the time of his death in San Remo, Italy, in 1888, he had created almost 400 natural history paintings, more than 7,000 watercolors documenting his travels in Europe, the Mediterranean, the Middle East, and India, about 2,000 studio watercolors, and more than 300 oil paintings, many of them quite large. He published five illustrated travel books, his monograph on parrots, and more than 200 other lithographs of birds, mammals, and reptiles from various parts of the world. Imitation, it is said, is the sincerest form of flattery, but I would suggest that inspiration may be an equally valid way of charting the influence of an artist. Lear has been inspiring imitators and kindred spirits for almost 200 years. In the last few minutes I have with you today, I want to show you the work of a handful of contemporary artists who continue to be inspired by Lear today. As you might imagine, there are many artists who have created illustrations to accompany Lear's verses. And I show here as an example a collection of Lear's favorite limericks as interpreted by Michel Lemieux. And this interesting version of The Owl and the Pussycat is by the noted children's book illustrator Jan Brett, who has given the subject a Caribbean theme. It's an original composition and conception that uses the words and captures the spirit of Edward Lear while departing considerably from his more Spartan linear style. Looking through the long history of artists inspired by Lear, we find a who's who of children's book illustrators, from Beatrix Potter, who incorporated his stories into many of her illuminated letters to children, two of which you see here, to Maurice Sendak, who loved Lear's stories so much that he drew one of his own characters from Where the Wild Things Are, reading a copy of one of Lear's books. And you may be able to read, it's Nonsense Songs, Stories, and Alphabets by Edward Lear. Other favorites of mine who drew inspiration from Lear were the late Edward Gorey, and the contemporary artist Barry Moser, but to talk about all of these would be another lecture altogether. In the field of natural history painting, there are several notable artists who are today carrying on the Lear legacy. These include the British artist Elizabeth Butterworth, who has created her own spectacular monographs on parrots that Lear would certainly have admired, and the late Australian artist William Cooper, who's famous for his large format illustrations of birds. His scientific monographs on parrots, toucans, kingfishers, and most recently on pigeons, carry the Lyrian Gouldian traditions into the 21st century. The American painter, Walton Ford, has taken this tradition and moved it into the realm of fine art, providing his own considerably darker perspective by creating works of art that contain complex subtexts about human excess and environmental degradation. Here, the superficial beauty of the birds seduce us into admiring a scene that on closer inspection is filled with details that pretend their ultimate destruction. For example, here, this parrot, uh, who's being presumably raped by another parrot, is about to bite a, a 
piece of fruit, in so doing will release a trap which will strangle it. You could see it's attached to a spring-like branch here, and it's going to be garroted. Uh, and here the monkey is taking care of that same process. Ford's paintings often reveal a rapacious abuse of the natural world and make subtle and sometimes not so subtle references to human savagery and decadence. Sex, violence, cruelty, and man-made environmental disasters are sub-themes that run through almost every one of Ford's large, beautifully painted watercolors. Another contemporary American painter, James Prosek, plays with the more gentle and whimsical side of Lear's imagination. At left is a painting of an imaginary species he calls a cockatool. And although not obvious at first, a careful look at Prosek's picture reveals a variety of Swiss army-like tools projecting from the primary feathers in the bird's wings. And here, in an earlier version of the same theme, uh, the tools appear in the feather crest. I think you can see the, the Swiss Army knife tools there. One could well imagine Lear himself creating a drawing like this in one of his fun-filled, pun-filled letters. In fact, here's one of Lear's whimsical botanicals on the left, next to James Prosek's imaginary bird. And here's a comparison with one of Lear's more strictly scientific plates. Although Prosek's paintings are not directly derived from Lear, the parallels are striking. Like Lear, Prosek loves to play with puns as he explores the meaning of taxonomic classification, as we see in this painting of his imaginary hybrid parrotfish. One can only imagine how pleased Edward Lear would be to see artists like James Prosek and Walton Ford giving new interpretations to some of the very same subjects that he so enjoyed during the early decades of his life. Lear's extraordinary paintings and those of others who continued to probe the boundaries between science, art, and imagination are topics that I find endlessly fascinating. They enrich our lives and make the world a more interesting place. This is the kind of continuing legacy which I'm sure Lear would have enjoyed and encouraged. Who knows what kinds of paintings he himself might be creating were he alive today. In closing, I would like to thank the Boston Athenaeum for inviting me, uh, David Godin and Sarah Eisman, our designer of this beautiful book, for producing it, uh, and all of you for coming to be with me this afternoon. Thank you.